On this new series of the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast, you're invited to listen in on the guest visits to my Hustle and Grit class taking place virtually at the Ivy Business School. Hustle and Grit is a course that we created to teach you everything that you didn't learn in business school, in business school. In it, we invite world-class innovators and entrepreneurs to talk about topics like motivation, how to learn, what to prioritize, and even how to be happier. In these episodes, you'll hear live audio from my classes because honestly, there's just something different about the energy, excitement, and honesty taking place in a live classroom environment. So get comfortable, grab a seat, and don't worry, unlike my real class, I won't cold call you. Enjoy. Andrew and ClearBank are the epitome of how you could do more together than you can alone. Please join us in welcoming this incredible leader to our class, one Michelle describes as a visionary. Coming soon to a classroom near you. <laughs> Andrew, what do you think, man? Man, that's awesome. I don't think I've ever been introduced like that. That is, uh, that was great. Also, you can, when you don't have hair, you have to really like, you have to experiment with beard styles. And so you could see my, you could see the evolution over the years uh, of the, of the different beard styles uh, for different seasons. So I'll say um, like the only, yeah, the only improvement on that video would be just to show your face and how the beards change over time. Yeah, exactly. It, it is, it has evolved my, it has evolved with my career. It's been something that I've experimented with aggressively throughout, <laughs> throughout my life. <laughs> well, where does this podcast, where do we find you now? Are you back home in Toronto? Are you still on the road? Yeah. So we, we, uh, we attempted to take a vacation. We realized we were working remotely. We can talk a lot about remote work. I'm sure we'll get into that here, but we tried to take a vacation to Barbados, which was a bit of a challenge because like this is, it's a crazy time and we're coming into Q4, which is the busiest time of year for us as a company. So we got a couple of days actually off and then we worked from here for most of last week and realized that we were actually working pretty effectively from here. So we decided to, to extend our stay a little. Uh, and so we'll see. So you're, you're catching me in Barbados here. So if you see a mosquito fly around the screen, um, that's where it's, that's where it's coming from. Good. Good for you guys. I do want to talk about, uh, sort of making, making life work as an entrepreneur and taking the time that you need. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. The group did some digging on your bio there, Andrew. And since these are maybe a little bit different from the normal groups that you talk to on podcasts and in some of these interviews, these are, you know, fourth year university students. They're always super interested in hearing like, the how you got to where you were. And when talking to people who are not so far distance from where they are today, I think it'd be awesome if you wouldn't mind starting with like your entrepreneurial, if that is part of the story upbringing and sort of where you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, I, like, I don't think I had a, a very different life than probably most of the people on this call, uh, you know, grew up, I was, you know, born in India, moved to, moved to Canada when I was quite, quite young and, you know, being part of an immigrant family, it was just sort of this idea that like, you just had to, we just had to figure out how to make, uh, how to make things work. And so my family was very supportive, but like overall, if I needed to, if I wanted to buy CDs or go to the movies or hang out with my friends, I don't know if you guys don't know what CDs are, um, but you know, if I, if I wanted to, uh, to buy anything, uh, I had to figure out a way to earn a living and so, or, or earn, or earn it. And so, um, you know, called the Mississauga news, which is where I grew up and convinced them to, uh, let me, let me start the paper route. They weren't delivering to my neighborhood. So that was the first step. And then just flyered, like, you know, it, as I would go around and deliver papers, I'd put up flyers being like, Hey, I'm, you know, 10 years old and I can, you know, babysit or dog walk or mow lawns or, uh, tutor your kids on and math and like started, started doing that. And that, you know, that was always sort of part of, part of my, uh, my life and career. And then I studied engineering really cause I loved cars. Like I, you know, I was really, I was saving up for a car in high school thought I was going to build and design cars, loved it, studied engineering really with that goal in mind. And then, you know, even throughout university, I went to Waterloo. And so there was a co-op program. So every, you know, every four months I would go and work. Uh, And so I worked in, worked at GM. I learned that I loved, I loved building stuff. Like I was working in robotic automation and, and the manufacturing plant, but I just felt like you were so far away from the decisions that are getting made about the company and the direction, um, you know, being a plant, you know, you know, in, in a plant and then worked on a bunch, you know, did a bunch of different interesting engineering roles, did some work in investment banking, um, worked at McKinsey for a little bit. And I thought the, the consulting world was interesting in that you're involved, you're around the strategy, right. And you get to see sort of why people make decisions and the strategy behind it, but then you're so far away from the actual building. So I figured that, I think what I realized in a pretty roundabout way is if you like 
being part of setting the direction and being part of the strategy, but you also like getting your hands dirty and having ownership and accountability. The only way to do that is in very small companies. And so that was what, what motivated me to get involved in sort of the startup and entrepreneurial world, because, you know, that's the, that was the, that was the opportunity for, for me to, to, to do that. And so that's when I moved out to San Francisco and, you know, ended up joining an early stage startup and, and, uh, and that was, you know, that was the beginning of my journey here. So why is it, it seems like I've seen commonalities with entrepreneurs, people who go on to do some pretty big companies, at least in, in my social circles, seem to start out as consultants. Like so many people start out in the consulting world. What is it about consulting you think that draws people that are either entrepreneurial or builds a skill set that allows people to be good entrepreneurs? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if ever, so I guess it, there's a, I don't know if there's a correlation or causation here. I think there's just a lot of consultants. And so some percentage of consultants end up going and becoming, becoming entrepreneurs. I do think there's a few things that I learned. One was just getting up to speed on a new industry or a new business very quickly. Like, you know, you're on a four week project. You don't have three weeks to ramp up on it. Like you have, you know, an hour and a half to like, okay, let me, let me, let me figure this out. And then I think there's something about the pace, like at McKinsey, basically like, okay, we had a 7am meeting and then it was like, okay, 7am, we leave that meeting. Okay. There's a 10am meeting with a client. What are we going to do between 7.30 and 10? And then after the 10, there's a 1pm meeting. So literally like you're getting four iteration cycles of work done. And it's not like you're following a prescribed roadmap. You're sort of learning, you know, as you're going. And that's basically what a founding team does, right? When you start a company, you're sitting in a room, you're like, okay, here's our, here's what we think the market wants. How are we going to learn and de-risk this assumption as quickly as possible? You know, even if we've got to take, find some shortcuts, you know, we're not going to do as much building. We're going to do some more selling and building, talking to customers and things like that. So, you know, I found that really effective teams operate sort of like dedicated consulting teams because they just have, they remove all the other constraints and they're just like, okay, if I can get four iterate, four learning cycles or four iterations done in a day, then I'm moving at, the, you know, at a way faster speed than what most companies are able to. Hmm. So, but you didn't go right from consulting to starting your own thing. You joined some startups before that, right? Yeah. I, you know, I think this is one of the, this is one of the, um, the secrets of consulting firms is they, yeah, I didn't have the confidence. I probably had the skills, but I didn't have the confidence to go start my own thing right out of McKinsey. Cause I felt like, okay, well, yes, I've had success, but really it was because I had the McKinsey brand name. Right. And I think this is where like a lot of people use that as a crutch. Like, okay, okay I couldn't really do this myself. You know, I, I had to have, you know, something else behind me. And so that was when I, when I, um, I thought about, you know, joining, a, uh, an early stage company and I ended up meeting, uh, meeting an investor named Chamath who was head of growth at Facebook at the time and ended up starting a fund called social capital. And he had invested in a number of companies. So I was either going to go join his team at Facebook, which was a big company at the time at like a thousand people. And uh, I think, you know, financially it would have been more lucrative for me to join pre-IPO Facebook than join an early stage startup that ended up failing. But from a learning perspective, uh, I think, I think it was, it was a deliberate was, choice. You were optimizing for learning. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. So that was, and it was a company called Top Prospect. It was a cool, I mean, and it was one of Andreessen Horowitz's first seed investments. And we had a, but we had a great roster of investors. I learned that great investors don't necessarily make a successful company, you know, despite what they'd market. And, uh, and then I learned, I think the biggest thing, and this is, this is, you know, the beginning of as, as what I thought about building what we built for ClearBank is I realized that all of these founders in Silicon Valley that you read about in TechCrunch and you read about in the Wall Street Journal and stuff, they're no different than entrepreneurs anywhere else in the world. They just happen to have access to capital and access to, you know, media really like they're, you know, they're, they're friends with people who will tell their story. But, you know, I met the founders of Instagram when they were still bourbon before they had pivoted to build Instagram. I met the founders of Slack before when they were still building tiny spec, which was like a mobile game that didn't work before they pivoted to Slack and everybody's just trying to figure it out. And I think that was one of the interesting things. Like I always thought my friends that were starting companies out of Waterloo were like somehow different than, you know, these people that I would read about. And then I met them and I was like, no, there's actually not that big of a difference. They just have, you know, it's proximity in a lot of ways. And so that was a big part of the mission for, for ClearBank was, you know, can we, can we reduce that barrier of proximity or social circle? Like, did you go to Stanford with this person or does your, your father know the right person to get access to, to that opportunity and that capital? And that was a big part of the motivation. Cool. So I want to transition quickly into uh, our class today is about teams. 
and mm-hmm. leveraging teams and how to do more with teams than you'd ever be able to alone. So how did you set ClearBank up from the very beginning from the right mission, vision, values, culture? And if you don't mind, I'd love to go into the specifics because a lot of these, are, this is arguably the most entrepreneurial group at Ivy. Yep. And they've had no shortage of conversations around the ambiguous talk of like culture in big companies, but like literally when it's you and Michelle or you and a few partners in a room at the beginning, what did you do to start off on the right foot and set the right culture from day one? Yeah. I mean, we, it was, it was pretty intense. Like we, you know, we, we started, uh, we got into Y Combinator and we all moved down to San Francisco and we lived in a house together and we did that for the first eight months of the company. And that sort of set the foundation for the way we work because we basically just worked at like, we worked at the speed of the customer and we worked at, you know, it was that consulting sort of like what I talked about that iteration cycle. The other important thing is our customers are founders, right? Our customers are entrepreneurs. And so what we, what we found really early is we have to think of every person who joins our team as being a founder. Like we need, they need to be like, I don't know if you guys have read the Lululemon Chip Wilson's book, but like when they hired people, whether those were store associates or people in head office, they hired their customer, right? They hired people who were into fitness and athletics and, you know, this lead yet like yoga and all of this stuff at that early, early days. And when you hire your customer, like you just like, it's a huge, huge advantage, right? Mm. You just like, you don't have to do all of the like customer discovery where everybody just innately thinks and breathes and empathizes it. And so, so one of the important tenants for us is like, we need to hire founders and like that can take different forms. That can be somebody who started a nonprofit. That can be somebody who started a club. That can be somebody who wants to be a founder or comes from an entrepreneurial family, but the way we think about it is everybody has their founder story, right? Like this is actually part of like your interview process and your onboarding is like, okay, let's talk about like, what is your, you know, what did you found? What did you build? Uh, what do you want to build? Right. What like ClearBank is going to be part of your entrepreneurial journey, but you are, an, you should think of yourself as an entrepreneur and we may be your launching point. We may be, you know, we've had people who have started companies, you know, raised some money and then failed and then joined our company. We've got the entire spectrum, but everybody thinks of themselves as, you know, we're a company built by founders for founders. And so that's a big part of it. And then, yeah, we can go into, you know, the specifics around like our culture and values and stuff like that. But I'd say that's one of the big foundational elements of, uh, of who we hire and how we, uh, how we treat them. And so did you, it's funny, like the example that I used in class and the example that everybody talks about is Netflix and their culture doc, right? The fact that they actually wrote it down. But I think I read an article from Reed Hastings saying that, like, yes, of course it's important, but that alone can't make you a successful company. And like, do all the other stuff. You have to do the other stuff first, and then you can put time into thinking about the culture. So it's, it was weird to hear that from even from the Netflix founders. Yeah. So did you, like when when did you guys actually say like these are the values? Like, did you did you? pick a time and literally like write them down and put them on the website or print them out and stick them on the wall. Like what did you tangibly do to say, this is what we stand for. This is the mission. Yeah. I think, it, I think, um, I remember one time we, we did, we started doing these retreats twice a year. And so the first, it sort of happened organically. We, when we were very small, we, um, we ended up getting an opportunity to move the whole company to the Yukon for a few weeks. Like the Yukon government had to like a sponsor, a start, like a startup in residence program. Like they used to okay. So. It was cool. Um, and we did a little offsite while we were there. And, uh, and that was the first time we wrote down our values. It was probably like, I don't know, a year, two years into the company. Um, and it was really just writing down what we were already sort of doing naturally. I've never believed in like writing aspirational values. Like, you know, if the values don't, don't align with what's actually going on, then nobody, nobody pays attention to them or nobody believes them. And so what we really, you know, I think, Maybe the way, the way I, I reconcile, like, you know, Reed's quote there is like being a, a founder or being an entrepreneur, you get to choose what you work on with who and like in what way, right? Like that's the, there's a lot of negative stuff about starting a company, but the positives are you get to choose your day, right? You basically get to choose what you work on and who you work with and what type of environment that is. And so, you know, that was really what we did was like, Hey, what, how, what, what do we like to work what way do we like to work? We, we, so we, the way we describe our, our values is uh, it's evolved in the description a little bit, but we call it swear S W A I R. And so speed is the first one. It's like, look, we just, we want to, we want to move very quickly. And it's exactly that. Like if, you know, if you can do something this afternoon, why would we, why wait till next Tuesday? 
winning is the W and it's not about us winning, but it's actually about this idea of like, if I'm entering into a conversation with you, with my peer, with my manager, with my customer, with my partner, whoever, I need to first establish that I want them to win. And I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm entering into this conversation or this discussion or this proposal because I'm, I'm on your side. And if you don't establish that, then even the smallest thing, like if I, if you, if I think that you want me to win, then you can actually say a lot of harsh stuff to me and I'm going to take it in. I'm going to take it with you know the best intentions. And if I think that you've got an, a different agenda then it doesn't matter how nice you are to me, I'm not going to trust anything you say. So, so establishing that that uh, is very important. The third is uh, authenticity. And it's basically just like, say what you feel like, and you may not need to like, it is really about when something feels wrong, just say that something feels wrong and feel and be okay with that and being able to, to be, to be real with each other around that. And that comes from winning. If you feel like somebody, if you feel like somebody is on your side and you can establish that you're on their side, then you can actually be yourself and be like, Hey, I want you to, I want you to be successful, but coming out of that meeting, something didn't feel right. You know, I didn't like, I didn't like when you said this and we need to, we were continuing to, to, you know, encourage that integrity, um, which is not about morality, but really about doing what you say you're going to do. And so it's like, you know, for football fans out there, like if somebody says they're going to be in a certain spot out there and they're going to run the route, then you can throw the ball expecting them to be there. If you need to wait until they're in the position where they need to be before you throw the ball, it's going to get intercepted or they're going to, you know, like, so, so that's the idea of integrity is every, if everybody says what they're going to do and then does what they say they're going to do, you can move much faster as a team. And then the, th- the last one R is responsibility, which is, is really like taking extreme ownership of things. And, and again, sometimes we, we conflate responsibility with blame and it's like, oh, you're responsible for this project failing or you're responsible for us missing a number. And it's actually, we want to, we want to um, remove that. And it's really about responsibility is the thing that you take. So you can take, you know, people can take responsibility for something they care about in the world, even if they're not, you can take responsibility for climate change, right? You can take responsibility for social equality. It doesn't mean you're to blame for it, but this is something that I'm going to take responsibility for because I, it matters to me. And so those are the, those are the values that uh, we talk about as a team and, 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 you know, so the way, way we operate. Cool. Good. So you, you uh, it seems like you already operated by those things and then explicitly wrote them down at one of your offsites. Yeah. It seems, exactly. like, seems like that's what happens eh, at those. Like it's, it's always at an offsite. Like you need to actually build in time to just hit pause and stop sprinting and just like think for 30 seconds about what you need to work on the business versus in it all the time. And it's usually in my experience, it was always at the offsites where you actually worked on the important, but not urgent things. That's it. And it's like, if we reflect on how we work, what are the things that we really like that we want to preserve as we scale? Right. And that was sort of it. It's like, Hey, you know, we're 10 people now, like when, you know, when we grow, what does that look like? So now at 200, 250 people, we're like, okay, well, like, do we have those things? And some of those things have eroded and we have to actually go back and be vigilant about, about, you know, bringing them back. And then as we continue to grow, it is, it's the same, the same uh, concept of like, how do we, how, what are the things we need to actively preserve in our culture? Otherwise you just sort of devolve back to the mean. Yeah. Can you talk about, talk about cadence for a second then and the importance of team, because it sounds like one cadence is that you have, you've got these by like twice annual offsites. Mm-hmm. Do you still do that fairly regularly? We do. I mean, we haven't done them since January this year. We missed our summer one. So we're trying to figure out how we, how and when we can bring them back. But uh, yeah, we've done that now for the last four years uh, with the company. And then uh, cadence around, I know you have cadences around daily standups and end of the day, all hands. Do you still doing those? Yeah. So, so we always did a Monday morning kickoff with the whole company and Friday we used to do drinks and demos, which was basically like demo what you built and grab a drink. And we continue to do that. And we used to have everybody in the company demo and that sort of started to take a very long time and consume a lot of drinks. Uh, so we, we've, we've carved it down a little bit, but it's still the same cadence. And then every, when COVID hit, we used to do a 5 PM close, you know, end of day sort of sync up just as a touch point for the whole team. Um, we did that for the first couple of months when we first went remote and then it got to be a lot. And so we've, we've, uh, we have a 5 PM every other Wednesday where we bring in like a guest, uh, speaker, we do more of like, you know, town hall type thing. So there's three touch points or there's two touch points a week and one every other week now, uh, with the whole company. And then each team, individual teams have their own sort of rituals and cadences and daily standups and things like that as well. 
the drum beat to keep things going. Exactly. Um, so you've established or you wrote down those values. Can you talk about your hiring process for how you bring in your people? I've, I've got to know Stephen Defina, your head of sales and a bunch of people on his team. And I love, he's got his own sales playbook and his philosophies about how he thinks about building his team. But I think you've done a pretty good job of sort of defining what the interview process to make sure that the people that you're bringing in are either the founders or sort of aligned with the values that you guys think are important. So what's your, what's your process to make sure that you're bringing in the right people? Yeah. I, you know, and we've, we've tried a bunch of different variations. I don't know if we've got it perfect, perfect, but I think we're, we've got a really good hit rate on the caliber of people that we hire and, and the cultural and values fit. So we do, we get, we have everybody submit a video, which is a little bit weird and awkward for folks, but it just gives us like a much, much quicker. And especially in today's environment, where you are interacting with everybody over, over video anyway. It just gives us a very quick glimpse into the personality and, you know, the energy and enthusiasm. And it doesn't like, I get that some people are, you know, introverted or extroverted and, and, and may feel, uh, you know, may, may not, may not present as well, you know, in that video. And we don't want people to do it, like to overproduce it. It's just a, you know, pick up your phone, just talk to us as a human being of like why you're excited about our mission and why you're excited about joining, you know, the role and, and, and joining the company. And that just, you know, I think that's, that's really what we try and suss out through the entire interview process. You know, we've got, we do the technical, we make sure that you've got the, the, the skills to do the job, but we actually feel like for a lot of jobs, we can, we can train the skills if there's real mission alignment. And so if people are, if people can articulate why they're excited about our mission, why we are uniquely positioned to solve the problems that we're aiming to. And then we figure out sort of like, do they have that, do they have that sort of X factor of being able to, to run through walls and, and, and move very quickly in, in a much more sort of chaotic environment? I think it's been, you know, we're still very much a startup, right? And I think startups go through phases of, you know, product market fit is not like a, it's not like a destination. It's sort of like a, a state or, you know, it's like a, you, you find it and then you lose it a bit and then you expand, you expand what you think of market and, and you have to go continue to refine it. And we, we continue to operate in that way. Um, so Steven is, uh, I love Steven. He's like, he is the, you know, he comes in with like a plan and a playbook and I've constantly pushed him out of his comfort zone and be like, that's great. But like, now we have to throw it away and start over. And we've got a really good, good working dynamic to be able to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been a lot of fun. So do you guys have specific like questions or do you, do you run them through scenarios? Like how do you actually suss out whether they're the right people? You know, I think it like what we really try and understand is why, like trying to just like understand people's life stories, right? Like what decisions did you make in your life? How did you feel about those decisions? And why, you know, why did you make them? And, and how did you, you know, like at the end of the day, our interview process is designed to help, you know, we, and we've had this feedback from people is like, Oh, actually like I either didn't get the job or I realized through the interview process, I actually don't want this job and I want to go work in a different type of company. And so that should be what it should, that's kind of what it should feel like is helping you understand what you're really good at what you're really passionate about and, and whether this is going to be the place for you to win. Right. I mean, if you go back to the value of winning, we want everybody who interacts with the company, everybody who applies to win, right. Regardless of whether that means you join our company, we want you to end up in the best possible place for you. And so that's sort of the, the guiding light of, of our interview process is really like, so it's not, there's not like a specific sort of question. Stephen might have like actually some sales specific stuff, but from our, our recruiting process, what we're really trying to understand is like who you are as a person, what motivates you, what you're, what you're, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning and will you get out of bed every, every morning to do the job that, um, that we're hiring you for. Yeah. Got it. So if we move on, say they're, they're hired in the company, they get onboarded. How do you think about giving them the right feedback or cadence around feedback. We had a conversation before you came on about radical candor mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of it's actually in everyone's best interest to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations. Is there a way that you guys thought through how to make sure that you give each other open and honest feedback so that you can be better? Yeah, it's it's something, again, it's one of these things that we 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 get really right and then you sort of lose a little bit. And I think if you don't have a good foundation of trust, then radical candor can be very, can be received very poorly. And this is why, you know, again, we go back to these values of like, 
the combination of winning and authenticity is really ra radical candor. Radical candor, or the like, the quote word of radical candor, can be used as a weapon very easily and like an excuse to be like an asshole. It's like, hey, uh, yeah, like you know, like that was a dumb, you know, you're you're an idiot. I'm just trying to be. I'm just just radical candor, right? Like, and so people will do that sometimes, and that's why we need, you need to actually. The foundation has to be you have to establish that you want this person to win, right? And they need to believe it before you can give people any feedback. Like your first job is, Hey, I'm on your side, right? The reason that I'm telling you this is because I actually want you. And so like, this is when, when we've had to exit people, like it's been exactly that. It's like, look, I, we could keep you here. Right. And we could continue to coach you and we could continue, but like, you're not winning. Like, and I want you to win. And I don't see a world anytime soon where, there is a role where you can win here. And so like for your best interest, here's the type of role where I like, here are the strengths that I see. And here's the role where I think you're going to be incredibly successful. And like, that's actually different than the environment that we're moving towards or that we are right now. And, you know, we don't always get it right, but that's what we strive to, to have in every conversation and every sort of like coaching conversation or feedback conversation is around like, um, Hey, here's what I've, I've observed. And like, people can disagree, but it's like, look, here's what I've observed, right? Like if I, and if I'm observing this, then maybe other people are. And that's sort of the, that's the, the tactic that we use around getting that, uh, getting that radical candor, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a comment from someone in the class here that brutally honest often ends up becoming more brutal than honest, you know, right. like that, to your point, the excuse of radical candor is just your free reign to be a total jerk to somebody. Just not, that's not, not what it means. Not exactly. what it means. Exactly. Yeah. I've been following you, your, your journey on LinkedIn a bunch, Andrew, and I know you get asked a lot of questions about this. I went actually, uh, I was up early this morning and I went way back to, I think seven years ago was your first LinkedIn post. I went back oh, wow. and I've been watching how it evolved. Like I think it started, I don't know, like a lot of us when we're first starting to test out LinkedIn, you're like sharing other people's news with no comments yeah. in it. Then like, uh, Hey, then you start to share your own news. Then you started to share like, Hey, we're hiring for people. And then I found one of your super early videos, uh, just starting to vocalize some of the things that are going on in ClearBank. Um, have you found like sort of, maybe you could talk to these, some of the students here who maybe aren't used to posting some of these thoughts, feelings, sort of document, don't create type of idea um, as they're going. So how, what's your experience been in starting to share some of those things and what are some of the positives and negatives of it? Yeah, it's been, it's been a fun journey. It's, it's sort of, um, you know, I used to, I used to do a lot of writing and I think like writing helps me clarify my perspectives on things and whether that's strategy, whether that's culture or hiring, like putting your stuff out there actually forces you to take a stand and take a position on a topic. And what, what we've been doing and I found when we were very small, I had a direct relationship with everybody. Right. And so everybody kind of knew, like they knew who I was, they knew it was on my mind. They knew like when I would say something, what the, you know, the context around that and, or what I was going through, like I might've been distracted or I might've been frustrated or I might've been tired or whatever. And as we started to scale, it became harder and harder for us, for me to have that sort of one, you know, one-to-one -one or two-way conversation with everybody. And so we, you know, in our all hands, what we'd start to do, you know, in our, in our all hands meetings is, you know, we'd end it with like Michelle and I would talk about like, Hey, here's what we're thinking, right? Here's what's on our mind. And it could be something about the business. It could be something about the world that's going on and how, you know, how it affects us as human beings. But we just sort of end it with like a thought about like, Hey, here's what, you know, here's something that, that, you know, I realized over the weekend, I was reading a book or I was listening to a podcast and this is what I realized over the weekend. And here's what I took from it. And I'm going to share it with you because it might be useful for you in your week. Um, mm -hmm. And that was really the motivation. And then our social media team was like, Hey, can we like start to, you know, have you thought about sharing some of this stuff externally? And that was really what they, you know, so it was really taking that broadcast. I realized that my job had been become more and more of a broadcast, at least to, to most of the team. And so taking that and just externalizing it. And it, yeah, it was definitely scary. First, it was like, you know, I don't know how people are going to react. Am I going to get canceled? Am I going to, you know, like, is he like, am I going to say something that I regret? And, uh, and are people going to go back seven years in my posts and be like, why did you say that? Uh, <laughs> well, but, I say them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's been a really rewarding experience. It's been great for us from a recruiting standpoint, because people understand sort of some of the rationale and the people behind, um, behind our, our company. And it's been help, really helpful for me. It's been like my version of journaling, um, which is just sort of like, okay, let me, let me put out uh, my thoughts out there and either in video or text and, 
and see, you know, how people react and, and start a conversation. Yeah. Like you, I think some people do, at least I get, I, I think through writing, you know, if I, if I mm-hmm. actually sit and put the time into writing something down and I, frankly, I have probably a hundred times more notes privately than I ever write publicly. But I, I think yeah. by actually putting thoughts on paper or digital, even on my computer. And so if only just to clarify my own thinking around some issues, it's been super helpful for me. I'm not as uh, frequent or as high quality of a poster as you are, but uh, it's just helped in my clarity of thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a very good exercise. Um, and it's something that I, yeah, I, I, it's always, it's hard to find the time, but I think when I do, it's like, yeah, I find it very rewarding. And I, I think I, the more, the more I use it as an internal sort of exercise instead of it being like a performative exercise, um, which is, I think what a lot, like what a lot of social media is and what, you know, you're naturally when I'm, I'm, you know, we're naturally sort of tend towards is like, okay, I've got to, it's got to be fully polished and it's got to be thought through and every angle and all of that stuff. And when really, it's just like, I'm just sharing myself as a human being. Right. And, you know, yeah. When I looked at, I I have no, didn't do the data to support it, but if I look at the ones that you filmed yourself versus the ones that were like, have a higher production value, I don't, I don't, I think actually the ones that are just more candid get more responses. I don't know if you, you, you find that, or it just seems like the ones that you're literally holding your phone and just here's a thing on my mind gets way more reactions and responses than the ones that are professionally filmed. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, I can ask our social media team on that, but I think you're right. I think, I think I do get way more responses and engagement when it's like, Hey, I just thought of this Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I posted. Yeah. And your team goes, Oh God, he didn't run that by me. Um, (laughs) so you got, I, I get that you're still, you say that you're still a startup and in a lot of ways, I'm sure you are. However, you're 250, some 200, some odd people now. Um, there was a post that you had about five months ago, uh, where you say it's the, the job of the CEO isn't to keep everybody happy. And I wondered if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on what does the CEO of a 250 person company do and what, what is your role nowadays? Yeah. You know, change, it changes like pretty frequent. It's, it's certainly changed on like, um, you know, monthly or every few months for me, um, for the last couple of years now. At our stage, you know, I think one of the important things I found is I still like setting the like product direction and, and strategy. So being like, hey, how do what are the what are the invest what are the bets that we're placing, um, and how much are we willing to invest to to learn? Like what we're what we're really trying to do is say, okay, our product strategy is we're expanding. You know, we're expanding into new markets. We're expanding into new product offerings what's the shortest path to, for us to figure out, should we be playing in this market? Should we be offering this product, right? It could be a market segment. It could be a geography. It could be market size or a customer type, or it could be a new product offering. How do we make those investments? And, and in success, how do those tie together? Like, how do we make sure we're not just a conglomerate of disparate products, but actually like there's a cohesive strategy around it. And how do I remove the constraints? I think a lot of people have, they're like, Oh, well, we couldn't do this because we don't have enough people, right? Or we couldn't do this because there's a financial burden or there's a legal regulatory burden, or there's a, you know, some other technical barrier. And I think many startups assume constraints and what we want to do is choose our constraints. So it's like, okay, look, we're going to push the constraint and say, okay, well, no, that's illegal. So we can't do that. Right. Or like, that's like, that would cost us a hundred million dollars. So we can't do that. But like, let's actually actively say that's the constraint instead of, you know, and then, and then everything else is, is unconstrained. And so we can solve the problem around that. So that's the strategy part of my job. But I would say that actually the more important part of my job is the people side, which is just like putting people in the right roles and actually making sure that all of our people are, uh, are actually in the right, uh, Michelle's just, I got off another podcast, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think that's, that's the other, that's actually maybe the most fun is like, think of like building a company as a jigsaw puzzle or building a team in an organization around like, Hey, you've got a jigsaw puzzle and everybody's like a different piece. And it's so satisfying when you, when you fit the right person in the perfectly right role, or when you design the right role around somebody's specific skill sets and what they're uniquely qualified to do. And it's constantly evolving because the needs of the company are evolving. And so, you know, like shuffling around roles and responsibilities and organizations, 
it's a very fun and satisfying part of my job um, that I think I'll probably always, always love doing. Yeah. Well, uh, and she's in the background. So it made me think of it. How did, how do you guys split up those roles nowadays? Like what you do product and people um, is Michelle focused on sales partnerships? Yeah, I'd say like, you know, we're, we make a pretty good team. So when like, we'll, we'll, we'll tag team a lot of stuff uh, that are really important. So like very important partnerships, very important fundraising efforts, uh, very important hires. But for the most part, like Michelle's like superpower is just building external relationships, whether that's with media or journalists or partners. And I think that's like, that's one of her incredible strengths. The other thing that she's really good at, she's going to like, keep me honest here. Um, I know she's right in front of you. So you better, I know say it right. Um, better be good at something. She's also just a wonderful human being. recording. Um, so, so, uh, anyways, um, her other real strength is, is, um, she can like, she can smell smoke, right? So if you think about our, our different backgrounds, I had always been the person at all my companies, even before I was a founder, I was the person raising money. And so like, that was my job was tell the story, raise capital. And I'd always been part of venture backed startups. And so it was like, go, go, go biggest possible vision, you know, like, make a bunch of mistakes along the way. We burn capital, like, you know, we, we trade, trade capital for speed and Michelle was bootstrapped in all of her previous businesses. And so she's always the one that's like, Hey, this seems, this seems wrong. So she also looks over like finance and stuff. And she's basically like, Hey, this seems weird. Like these numbers don't line up. Like our payback period is too long here. And so she's really good at sort of like smelling the smoke. And then we come together and sort of solve the problem. And then, yeah, what I love doing is, the product vision, the direction, and then the people and organization stuff and putting people in the right roles and setting them up for success. And so those are the the areas that we sort of break down on, but there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of trade-offs, you know, depending on, uh, depending on what the company needs at what time. Nice. It's, uh, I love what you guys are doing and everybody on the team that, that there's like two companies that seem to be have a really good stranglehold on talent right now in Canada. And it seems to be Shopify and ClearBank. And I see more and more names, the names getting updated of I've joined ClearBank or I've joined Shopify. So whatever you're doing, if, if people are the most important thing, it seems like you're just you're getting all amazing people. Everybody that I talk to on either the recruiting team or the sales side, they're just, it's just a great team that's in it. Like they are so in it with you guys right now. So you, you've got a great, you got a great thing going, it seems at least from the outside. No, appreciate it. Appreciate it. It is uh, that's good. I mean, look, that's a good company to be in for sure. Um, and I've been super impressed with, uh, with what, uh, what Shopify has done and Toby, I mean, I got to know Toby and Harley from the very early days and they've done a, done an excellent job in building their team. And, and then, you know, when you, when you have the right people in the right roles, uh, and you're pointed at the right market, you know, good things happen. Right. And so we've, we've taken uh, certainly a page out of their book in terms of how we, how we think about building our team. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to save some time for questions uh, from students. So Alex, I haven't, I haven't opened it up yet, but uh, what do you see has been upvoted the most here that we should ask Andrew? One question that has a lot of reactions is Felix's question. I, Felix, do you want to ask it or I can ask it? Yeah, I'll ask. Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. One sec. Um, yeah, I guess my question, you worked both uh, professionally in the industry as a consultant and then also obviously starting your own company. And I guess probably why my question got a lot of reactions was the way that I worded it. Um, as a person that's both been an employer, an employee and an employer, um, what do you think truly sets apart those that receive paychecks and those that write them? Um, that's a good, I mean, look, I think... Um, what sets apart the people that receive? It's a good, it's a good, it's a good question. I think it's a journey, right? And I think through, if you talk to most entrepreneurs, they float in and out of those. And like, to be honest, we all sort of like, you know, like I have a board um, and I have investors and I have customers, right? And like, without all of those, like that's my paycheck, right? Uh, And so it's really about like the level of risk appetite, the level of, it's, it's, it's like the level of conviction and risk appetite that you have. So if you, if you're like, look, here's a thing that doesn't exist in the world that I need to go and create, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go build it no matter what, then your job is then to evangelize and find other people who are going to come along that journey as, as customers, as investors, as employees, and as team members. And that's really what I had at ClearBank was like a high level of conviction that founders and entrepreneurs, you know, like 
the way that capital, the way that information and opportunity is allocated to them is really unfair in today's world uh, where there's much more data and uh, and sort of like the nepotistic world of like venture capital or banks or whatever um, you know, shouldn't exist anymore. So that was the conviction. And we thought, you know, I thought we were us as a team and as a founding team, we're really well positioned to go solve it. It took me a while. I didn't have that conviction on other things. And so what I did was through that process, when I did get excited about a business, you know, I was really excited about education technology. And my mom was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. I saw the impact that the technology will have in the classroom. I used to work with the Khan Academy uh, early in my career. And, and I met the team at Top Hat. And like, I was like, okay, this, this could have a major, major impact. Uh, and so then it was just about, you know, you know I think it's, it's almost always easier to find somebody else who's solving the same problem you're incredibly passionate about and then just join the cause than try and start something new or try and start a sort of copycat. So I would say the only time that it, it really, really makes sense to start something new is when you have the level of conviction about something specific in the world that you want to see that isn't being worked on or isn't being worked on the way that you think it should be. And you think you're the right person to go do it. And I think that's, that's probably the, the difference. And that, that happens at different points in people's lives and careers. And sometimes you go back, uh, you know, so I could imagine myself in future state being like, Hey, actually, uh, you know, I'm excited about joining somebody else's vision. But, uh, but I think, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think there's like, you're born one way or another. Right. Um, yeah. Nice. Thank you. Alex, what else do you see in there? Izzy, do you want to ask your question? Yes. Um, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today, Andrew. I think you kind of answered half of my question, so I'm just going to modify it a little bit. But I'm just wondering, in your recent rapid expansion of ClearBank's team, how have you managed to instill and maintain a consistent culture? Yeah. I and look, I don't think I've done a perfect job um, for sure. Like we, you know, we've we've focused on growth too much and and uh, and haven't been as vigilant. But I think it's it's it comes down to like vigilance, right? It's like just being honest with yourself. I think it can be very, like, it's a, it's a, it's a big ego hit to realize that your culture is, is devolving, right. Or like, is even one dimension of it is not going in the direction that you want. So it's hard to admit sometimes, but that's like the first step, right. Of like admitting you have a problem and then be like, Hey, like, you know, this is how we used to operate. And this is why we all liked it. And now we're starting to see whether it's politics or bureaucracy or gossip, like all of these things that can work their way in and are, you know, natural ways that humans evolve in groups that you kind of want to actively fight against sometimes. So step one is like calling it out, being like, Hey, look, this is happening, getting to the root cause of why it's happening, being like, yeah, like taking that ego hit of like, yeah, I, you know, I presided over us, you know, losing this or losing, partially losing this dimension of our culture that was important to us. And so taking responsibility for like, okay, how do I, you know, how do we, how do we fix it? And sometimes it's a few conversations. Sometimes some people that, you know, were with you for part of the journey are no longer a good fit for the next phase. So a lot of times it's changing the way that I interact with the organization and sort of looking internally. But I think it starts with just being very, very honest about this current state of the culture of the company and the trajectory of the culture and the dimensions of the culture that um, may not be going in the direction that uh, we want and correcting it quickly. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Keep going, Alex. Max. Hey, Andrew, thanks for uh, coming today. Um, so I've heard that a great way to incentivize early performance is to share ownership with your initial team members. And I'm wondering if this is something you did at ClearBank. Uh, how did you decide which early team members to give ownership to? And was it effective in motivating the team? Yeah, I mean, our philosophy has been like, everybody should be an owner of some, some capacity. So it depends on obviously, like, it's reflective of how much risk you're taking on the business or what stage you joined and then sort of what your you know, what, what the impact is of the company. And so like in what role and, 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 and what impact, but yeah, we've been a, we've been a big proponent from the very beginning of everybody having some stake in the company and, you know, some, some sort of stock options. Um, and we've continued to continue to, to, to do that, uh, as we've scaled, obviously the level of ownership, you know, reduces as the company grows, but you know, our hope is that it's still, a very good investment uh, for people because, you know, there's still a lot of growth to do as a company. Uh, we've, we've only scratched the surface of, of what our, you know, ambitions against our mission are. Thanks. Um, Tierney, do you want to ask your question? Sure. So my question was, um, I noticed from that initial bio when 
team's introduction of you that you are an investor. So what I wanted to know, is there a specific characteristic you look for in the teams or the companies that you invest in that you believe translates to future Yeah. So it's a really good question. I think there's, so there's two ways, like we started ClearBank to take the bias. So let me start with, maybe start with the way that I invest. Like all of the investments that I've made have been of people that I've known like for years, right? So Mike Katchen and I worked together at McKinsey. Um, We both moved down to San Francisco pretty soon after each other, stayed friends there, moved back to Toronto within about a year of each other. And we would chat as he was starting Wealth Simple. And so I didn't really like, it didn't really matter what he was going to do. When he, when he said he was going to start a company, I was going to invest in him. Ali at Tulip Real Retail, we actually shared a, an apartment in Toronto when I was commuting from San Francisco to Toronto and he was commuting from Waterloo to Toronto. And so same thing, he was like, hey, I'm raising around. And so I was like, and basically what I would do is help them, help them find investors uh, and then write a small check into their, into their companies. So, you know, it was all sort of personal relationships, which was my angel investing. But then I think what I realized was when we started ClearBank, Michelle and I were like, should we start another venture fund? Right. And, you know, because we like investing, we like supporting entrepreneurs and then just realized that we would just be perpetuating the same thing. If we were, if we were to build another VC, it would be, we would be investing in people that we knew. Right. And we'd be building relationships and it would be limited to our network and, you know, the, the profiles of people that we meet, that we get to know and our sort of limited exposure to the world. And so what we really wanted to do is take a completely different paradigm and say, let's just let the data do the talking. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what, you know, like what you look like or what school you went to, or where you grew up. I don't even care what your product is. Uh, like, I, you know, we've got people that have like hair extension products and like sex toy products and all like, you know, like, like, but I'm like, look, if you've got a great product and your customers love your product and you've got an efficient way to find them, then like, why should I have to pass judgment on it? We should just be able to fund you. And so that's been, been, uh, you know, a big part of the mission. And so we try to separate that. So my personal investing is people that I, you know, trust implicitly, regardless of what they work on, I'm betting, I'm betting on the people. And then through ClearBank, it's, it's all data driven. And it's just about like, you know, do you have a good business regardless of, you know, your background? Thank you. Thanks. Andrew, your question is getting a lot of reactions. Yeah. Fellow Andrew. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us uh, today. My question was, uh, are there any criticisms that you've received on the ClearBank model and how would you respond to those criticisms? So one that I was thinking of is since you're, you're not taking equity, you're just taking a percentage of revenue uh, until the investment's returned plus that I think six to 12% fee. Has there been criticism that you might be taking like a short term kind of like cash squeeze approach to the businesses you're investing in rather than like a long term value approach? Yeah. Um... I don't know if we've gotten that exact question, but I think I think it is certainly part of the model that like when when people do have an opportunity to invest, you know, and a, and a short-term opportunity to invest in marketing or inventory, then then we can be a very effective solution there. Our goal is to be a long-term partner, and so what we try and do is actually, you know, we almost want to create capital um, in like a SaaS product. So like every month we keep your your budget funded, and so that's a big part of part of our goal is. You know, it's not just a short-term capital injection. It's actually part of a plan that we establish with our customers. But yeah, I mean, look, I think one thing that we realized is there's actually, you know, there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of customers who we'd love to have a longer-term relationship with. And so we're starting to develop and design longer-term products um, for us to, to really establish a partnership. Um, I think for, you know, when you're designing a risk capital product, like what we've built, it, you know, we had to do very, very short duration. Like when we started, we were funding Uber drivers for like three or four days at a time. Um, and then we were funding Airbnb hosts for like a month at a time. Now we're funding e-commerce businesses for about six months. And now we're starting to fund software companies for a year or two. Like, so we're actually starting to, you know, and it just allows us to continue to build on our model and evolve it. Um, if we had started by saying, Hey, we're going to do a five year, you know, equity investment or, or, you know, five year term loan or something like that, it would have taken, like, it's really about the speed to uh, the speed of learning um, that we're trying to optimize. Uh, Abby? Sure, yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting. You just mentioned it briefly that in your infancy, your team actually lived together in San Francisco. And I was curious on kind of the impact that that had, uh, whether it was really instilling those kind of team family values, or did it pose any challenges for you in actually ever getting to have a shred of work-life work-life balance and navigating that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was, uh, look, I, I mean, look, as, as when you're starting a company, like, I think, I think there's very little like work-life balance that like, I think you just have to sort of agree that like, we're going to, we're going to be all in on this. Um, and it was fun. Look, the nice thing is we all, everybody was all in, right. Everybody was really excited about what we were doing. And so we would still like, we'd go out to dinner and we'd go out explore. We were, you know, I had lived in San Francisco before, but most of the rest of the team hadn't. And so we would go and explore and we'd go out for drinks and like, you know, we, we wouldn't just sit down and work all the time, but we were always kind of on, like we were always sort of like talking about stuff or come, you know, bouncing around ideas. And to be honest, it's even my life now, like, you know, I'll, it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm working all the time, but I always have ideas and I'm always like, I'm calling people like, you know, whenever, like, my team will randomly get calls from me at like eight or 10 PM and it's never urgent. So like, they don't have to, if they're not in the mood, like they know what it's about. They know it's because I had some crazy idea. I wanted their, their thoughts on, um, if they're not in the mood to chat about it or they're not able to, it's fine. But like, that's just the way that I think, you know, I'm wired. And I think a lot of founders are just like, they, they care so much about the mission of what they're doing that they can't really turn it off. Now, I think it's important to have a balance and like be healthy and have friends and all of that, like other relationships. And, but I think like the idea that you could just shut off, yeah, it's, it's probably a bit of a fallacy, um, to be honest. I'm going to get you out of here early, Andrew. We, we really appreciate your time more than generous. I know we're heading into Q4, super busy, but I, I thank you for coming in. I appreciate your time. Enjoy some vacation, man. I will appreciate it. Thanks. All right. I'll, take care. Yeah. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.